Hi, and welcome to NeuroCare Academy. Uh, this is a feature presentation with uh, Associate Professor Andre Brunoni, who's been good enough to join us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome, Andre. Hi, Trevor. Hi, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Excellent, excellent. No, it's, it's fantastic to have you. And um, it's the end of the day there in Brazil at 6 p.m., uh, 8 a.m. here in, in Melbourne, Australia, the next day. Um, but look, we're very fortunate to have you, Andre, and we're looking forward to listening to you talk about brain stimulation in psychiatry, um, your personal view into its past, present, and future. Now, I know, Andre, you're the Associate Professor at the University of Sao Paulo Medical School, and also you're the Director in Service of Interdisciplinary Neuromodulation and Co-Director of ECT Service in the clinic's hospital. So look, you've got a, a very major role there in Brazil and um, you know one of the, the most, um, I guess, uh, interesting and, and up and coming uh, people in neuromodulation, researchers and clinicians in neuromodulation in the world. So it's, it's fantastic to have you here today. And we've prepared a few questions for you. So you've got some slides in answer for that. Um, so we'll start off with the first question. We, we'd like to know a little bit about each of the, uh, the researchers that we, um, that we talked to on, on NeuroCare Academy. Uh, so I'd like to know a little bit, a little bit about where you were born um, and where you completed your university education. Okay, so um, I have to say first that I'm very happy for this uh, special invitation. Uh, it's also nice to uh, talk a little bit about my career, not about only my scientific aspects, but also about my career. And uh, this was also an interesting exercise for me to look back in the past and then comment a little bit about uh, my trajectory. So I will just uh, share my screen first, because I have prepared some slides as well. Okay, I think you guys can see it. Uh, so first I would like to introduce my, my city. So I was born in 1981 uh, in Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is a very large city in South America. We have more than 10 million inhabitants. So it's really lots and lots of building, buildings. So I was born here and I was also raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I spent all my uh, basic elementary and uh, high school education in Sao Paulo. Uh, then I went to medicine, so I, I'm a, a physician. I went to the University of Sao Paulo, which is a very traditional university here in, in Brazil. It's also very big, so every, everything in Brazil is very big and large, but uh, we have like this beautiful building uh, of the University of Sao Paulo, now in the middle of the city. And I went to medical school between 1999 and 2004. And then afterwards, I continued my education uh, doing residency. Actually, I did two residencies. The first one was in internal medicine, uh, and, the and the second one was in psychiatry, also uh, in the clinics hospital, which is the main teaching hospital of the University of Sao Paulo. Fantastic. Thanks, Andre. Um, I've never been to Brazil, but I uh, would love to get there at some stage in the future. Um, and, and meet you and, um, and have a look around. It's, um, yeah, certainly uh, you've done a lot of education many, many years. And um, look, it's, uh, 
it's really, really interesting to hear about your education and, and when, what you studied. So if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit more about that, um, what subjects you did in your PhD and, and the laboratory that you, you did your studies in, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course, of course. And then I, I also have to add that I've never been in Australia, but I'm looking forward to, to go in the future. Uh, again, just share my slides here. Okay, and then continuing, uh, this was uh, basically my uh, background in terms of medicine. And then I went, uh, I have to say an uh, important fact in my career. So while I was doing a residence in psychiatry, I visited Professor Fregni's lab. Uh, actually, he didn't uh, have a, a, a laboratory at this time. So I visited Pasquale Leone's lab. Uh, Felipe was a postdoc there. Uh, but this was a very important step in my career. Uh, I went to Boston in 2008. So uh, in January, it was winter, it was very cold, but it was a very warm experience as well because that was my first contact with non-invasive brain stimulation. And I think in that moment, I decided first that I would do research in this line and second that I would be a researcher. So not only a clinician, but I, I would also dedicate uh, myself and my career to clinical research as well. So just after I finished my uh, medical res residence in 2010, I went uh, directly to do a PhD in neuroscience. So this is not so common here in Brazil. Usually people take a little bit more time between uh, the psychiatry residency or residency and PhD, but I went directly. I continued doing my uh, PhD at the University of Sao Paulo in the Institute of Psychology. And uh, something that's very common here uh, in Brazil is doing a sandwich PhD. So it's a funny name, but basically the idea is that uh, you go and spend some time during your PhD, like an exchange program. And then I, I went back to Boston uh, at Harvard Medical School. Now, uh, Felipe Fregni also or already had a lab, and then I stayed uh, almost six months there. It was also a very important step uh, in my career. Very good. Thanks. Look, uh, a really, um, a really interesting uh, history there with your with your studies, Andres. So um, obviously, you went very quickly into research, and you've done a lot of the, the clinical work as well. And that's one of the the main goals of NeuroCare Academy. Also, is to try to bring the research to the clinic to the clinicians, uh, to the clinics and, and, and make all of this research clinically applicable as quickly as possible. So we're going to ask you a few questions about that today and also try to understand how this research that you're doing um, can, can be transferred. So, um, but to begin with, let's, let's talk a little bit about your previous research in the field. Um, obviously you went um, very quickly from school into doing your PhD and doing your research. Mm -hmm. So if you could give us some background there, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. And throughout um, your explanation, not only of um, 
this question, but throughout um, the the whole discussion and interview, um, we're trying we'll be trying to bring all of this information to the clinic and make it make it applicable. So um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about your your previous research because it's been there's been some landmark studies that's uh, that, that we yeah, all know about. Yeah, that's true. And actually, I was very uh, of course there was lots of efforts, but uh, I was also very uh, fortunate for being able to do such a, a nice PhD. Uh, I, it was a, a nice combination of, of many things. Uh, and one of them, I think, is like this combination of just being out of medical residence. So everything in terms of psychiatry was very fresh uh, in my mind and, and the questions that I had. And also, no invasive brain stimulation was very new and fresh as well worldwide and also in Brazil. So I thought about combining these two things and I had a special interest about mood disorders. Mood disorders, I personally think it's a fascinating uh, set of disorders. And then we started, uh, I, I started my, my, my PhD, my research question was about major depressive disorders. So just uh, to remind uh, our, our viewers, what is that? So major depressive disorder is basically a condition uh, where people have two main symptoms, which are depressive mood and anhedonia, and they have lots of accessory symptoms such as anxiety, lack of libido, decreased concentration, weight changes. So as you can see here, these, uh, these symptoms are very, uh, they bring lots of burden and uh, they are very incapacitating, disabling. Uh, they can really affect someone's life and especially because usually people who have the first episode of major depressive disorder, they are in the early twenties. So it can be really uh, disabling. And then, uh, the question that uh, I had when I did psychiatry in, in my university, my medical school, was the issue of treatment resistance. So uh, we were in, in 2010, and uh, just about that time, they started the uh, trial or uh, they started the trials uh, were being published. And this this study was a major trial uh, that was done in the US in the beginning of this millennium. Uh, and they recruited more than 5,000 participants and they wanted simply to try all possible antidepressant drugs to see which one would work best and uh, what would be the side effects. So that was their idea. And because of that, they recruited lots of patients. And basically they found uh, two main findings which were not exactly stimulating, they were kind of disappointing. So the first one was that they could not really identify one single antidepressant that would be better than the other ones. So they were basically the same in terms of efficacy. Of course, in some analysis, uh, there was an indication that one type of antidepressant could be better than the other one, but the whole idea was that there was nothing more significant in terms of antidepressant drugs. And the second finding was that 30% of patients were treatment resistant. So basically it didn't matter what kind of drug they used, 30% would be uh, treatment resistant. And also uh, thinking about this 
70% who were not treatment resistant, many would drop out using antidepressant drugs later because of side effects. So I, I told you that people in the early 20s have this the first uh, depressive episode. And usually the side effects of antidepressant drugs are weight gain and also decreased libido. So really uh, important symptoms of for young and, and uh, for young men and women. Uh, meanwhile, uh, TDCS was being investigated and it had some interesting features in terms of adverse effects and safety. So basically, uh, and these were one of our first studies that I did uh, in my PhD was a systematic review about adverse effects in TDCS. And we found that uh, TDCS effects were mostly mild and well tolerated. So people had uh, uh, side effects such as itching, skin redness, tingling and burning sensation, but they were very, very mild. And uh, we didn't observe uh, dropouts uh, related to using TDCS, which was very different than uh, antidepressant drugs. We also found in later studies that people uh, didn't present serious adverse effects such as seizures, for instance, which is a complication of TMS. And even the risk of hypomania and mania was uh, very low. So it, it looks like that TDCS could be really used uh, in clinical practice. And then, uh, of course, thinking about other advantages, not only safety and tolerability, it is very non-expensive compared to TMS. I was also uh, sensible to this question because Brazil is a, a middle-income country. So if we can develop a treatment that's not very expensive, this would be very important uh, for other countries as well. Uh, we could foresee the possibility of using home use devices. This was not something real 10 years ago, but it's, it is now, I will comment on that later on. And we want to study the effectiveness for depression, which was our uh, big research question at that time. So. Uh, basically, these were the ideas that I had in my mind, uh, depression being a terrible and disabling disease, patients don't uh, tolerate the adverse effects of antidepressants, can we do better about this, and then could we use TDCS to help these patients. So that was what I had in mind uh, at that time, and that, that's why we designed the SELECT TDCS trial. So basically, we wanted to see or to compare TDCS versus antidepressant drug, but we also wanted to examine the combination of TDCS and antidepressant drugs. So how, uh, what would be their, their uh, effectiveness combined and separately. Uh, in order to do that, we did uh, a clinical trial. So a randomized clinical trial recruiting 120 patients who were adults. Uh, they were moderately to severely depressed and they were not using antidepressant drugs before the trial. So this is very important to avoid uh, interactions between previous antidepressant use and TDCS. The interventions were uh, two, sertraline and 12 TDCS sessions. And you can see here that we did this in a factorial design. So people could be randomized to one of four groups, TDCS, shun, and placebo, TDCS, shun, and sertraline, active TDCS and placebo and active TDCS and sertraline. So they were double blinded. They would not know uh, what treatment they would receive. And basically 
uh, we found that the combination of TDCS and sertraline uh, led to a faster and more effective response than each treatment alone. We can see here in the black line that there was a reduction of more than 50% uh, in the severity of symptoms. And also at week two, the, combined, the combination of TDCS and sertraline was more effective than each treatment alone. At week six, we also see that TDCS was superior uh, to placebo. Uh, we can also see that TDCS and sertraline had the same efficacy. Of course, this result was a little bit more challenging. Uh, first, because as you can see here, sertraline was not superior to placebo. So this was not completely clear here. And also the dose of sertraline was low. It was only uh, one pill, 50 milligrams per day, which is a low dose for treating patients. But basically these were uh, our findings. Uh, we were very happy for two reasons. First, it was published in, in German Psychiatry, which is one of the most uh, respected journals. I would say that's the dream of many PhD students to publish in, in this journal. And also uh, when uh, we had the acceptance, uh, our finding was also published in the New York Times. Uh, and also this, this made us very, very happy. And, and as, as an indicative that TDCS was slowly becoming a mainstream treatment. Fantastic. I have a few more slides here um, before the next question. Did you want oh, to okay, yeah. look at look at those slides or not? Yeah. So uh, I, I paused a little bit earlier, but then maybe you could just ask a follow-up question. So, okay, then what did you do next uh, after your PhD? Uh, yeah, so because this would on, be- On slide only... 19, we have, um, what would you consider your three, three research areas um, and publication and major publications so far? Um, should I ask that question now? Uh, these three slides, 15 to 17, I can talk in like two, three minutes, but then okay. this would be okay. Like, uh, okay, and then what was your next step in your career after you, you, you finish your PhD? So what did you do next? Okay. Uh, in, term, in terms of your biography. You know, like okay. That. And then you'll answer with slides 15 to 18. Yep. 15, yeah, uh, 15 to 17. And then in 18, then you, you ask about the research lines. Okay, no problem. Okay. Good, so, I, so uh, okay, next question. Um, great, Andre, thanks for the exp explanation. I was just wondering what you did after your PhD. Uh, was there something that you, that you went on straight away from that point? Yeah, so, so that was a decision that I did just after uh, my PhD. So I, I completed uh, it in 2013, as, as I said. So let me just uh, show, show you. And then I had good opportunities here in, in Brazil as well. So I could return to uh, the, the, the two hospitals that I used to work as a, as a resident and, and as, a, as a physician with a uh, good position. So I became both the head of the service of neuromodulation at the Institute of Psychiatry, uh, the position that I hold until now, actually. 
Uh, and then I became a research group leader and PI of the elect DVCS trial that I'm going to discuss uh, later on. But this was in the same hospital that I did my, my PhD. And this was between 2013 to 2017. And so this period just after my PhD was very nice. I could do lots of things. So this was the period of being a young investigator and I really uh, enjoyed this, this time in my career. So I started being uh, invited to go to conferences and lectures. And of course, there was lots of research as well. And then I completed my education between 2007 and 2018 when I went to Munich. And of course, when you go to Munich, you go to Oktoberfest. So here in, in the uh, upper uh, right side and, and uh, of course experiences uh, like going to a very, very cold place, which is unusual for, for me as a Brazilian, but also it was a very important uh, step in my career, like finishing my medical, my, my research uh, uh, education, my research track. And uh, here I have to, to mention Professor Frank Battenberg, who was my host when I was there. And it was a very uh, important experience, both personally and also in terms of research career. Great. Thanks, Andre. Well, it sounds like a very exciting time for you just after your PhD, Young Investigator Awards, um, traveling around the world. It must have been a really exciting time for you. So um, that's yeah. great. And, um, and then obviously you, you had all these ambitions and thoughts about what you would do uh, after that. Um, you had lots of different opportunities around the world as well. Uh, and so what did you end up choosing to do at that point? You, you, I know a little bit about your research. Um, obviously, uh, I can't explain it in as much detail as you, and that's why we have you here today. Okay. Um, but uh, but, but it's, it's really like I've, I've read a lot of your research, and I know that you're, you're really focusing on three sort of research areas. And would you mind telling us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, of course. So uh, I, I found that I was uh, well positioned to do uh, a type of research focused on clinical trials uh, because I was in a big hospital. I am in a big hospital in, in Brazil. Uh, just let me share my slides here. Just let me find this. That's okay, that's perfect. You're not talking over the top before you share your slides. That's good, thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to find for some reason. Oh. Okay, so let's share my, my screen. Okay, now you can see, right? Uh, okay, so you asked by, about uh, my research lines. Uh, so, and then first I have to say that uh, I decided to stay in Brazil and then I realized, or, or not only I realized, but also for the reason that I, I perceived that I could do large clinical trials here in, in Brazil, uh, because we have like a large city as you, you could see and a large hospital. 
and we could recruit many, many patients. And then that's why I develop, uh, I was able to develop three main research lines. Um, the first one I would say uh, is that we explored the efficacy of TDCS unipolar depression. And then we first started uh, with the interaction between TDCS and antidepressant drugs. Uh, we also started a second research line exploring the effects of TDCS in other disorders, also in terms of randomized clinical trials. And then our first study was um, the post-stroke depression, the efficacy of TDCS in post-stroke depression. And because I became the head of the service of neuromodulation at the Institute of Psychiatry, we had access to uh, TMS there. And then we started doing RCTs there as well. And then uh, the first example of this research line is the randomized clinical trial that we did evaluating the efficacy of deep TMS in bipolar depression. Uh, then we had other studies such as evaluating the efficacy of TDCS in bipolar depression, uh, comparing the efficacy of TDCS versus antidepressant drugs uh, in unipolar depression, then another study uh, investigating the efficacy of TDCS in schizophrenia, and then uh, in OCD, and I'm going to comment some of them uh, now. Uh, so the first one, uh, or, or the main one, uh, which was also very well published in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, we decided to compare the efficacy of TDCS versus an antidepressant drug. So as I was commenting uh, with you, we found that TDCS plus sertraline was more effective than each treatment alone, but we didn't, we were not so sure about the comparative efficacy between these two treatments. And that's why we decided to do the second study. This was a no-inferiority trial where we decided to compare TDCS versus escitalopram. Uh, why escitalopram? Because it, it is one of the most uh, effective drugs for depression and we could use a large dose or a high dose of 20 milligrams per day very fast. So it's, it's uh, the maximum dose is very close to the initial dose. It's simply 10 and 20 milligrams. So it was easy to achieve maximum dose. And then the no inferiority aspect was uh, to establish that the efficacy of TDCS would be at least 50% of the efficacy of estaloprin compared to placebo. So TDCS had to achieve at least minimum of 50% of efficacy of estaloprin, which is pretty standard in the field. And we also had a placebo arm where we could index the relative efficacy between TDCS and escitalopram. Otherwise, we could do a comparison and, for instance, finding that TDCS and, and estalopram both decreased 30% of symptoms, just just an example. But we could we would not be able to say if they were both good or, or bad because we didn't have the placebo arm. So with this design, we could have the relative efficacy as well. So our main findings uh, were that escitalopram First, estaloprom was superior to placebo, and then we estimate 50% of that, so 5.5, 50% is 2.75. And then we plotted the relative efficacy uh, of estaloprom versus TDCS. We saw that uh, the no inferiority margin crossed it. Uh, the, 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 sorry, the lower bound of the confidence interval crossed the no inferiority margin, as we can see here, the, the lower boundary of the confidence interval was 
4.3, and then only inferiority margin was 2.75. As this interval was crossed, then we concluded that TCS was not non-inferior to acetaloprin. And as we can see here on the left in the superiority analysis, actually acetaloprin was superior to TDCS. However, we also found that TDCS was superior to placebo. And then we could establish that the efficacy of TDCS must be something, of course, it's higher than placebo. And this is important because uh, placebo has a strong uh, effect in depression. So it was above that, but it was not better than acetaloprine. And one of my current research lines is trying to understand this better as I'm going to, to explain this later. Uh, however, uh, even with this finding, uh, other people, of course, around the world also did many clinical trials about depression. We did uh, a very uh, recent meta-analysis synthesizing the efficacy of TDCS with 23 uh, randomized clinical trials, more than 1,000 patients, and we could find actually that TDCS was superior to placebo in all endpoints in terms of depression improvement, in terms of response and remission. So really consolidating the efficacy of TDCS in depression. When we did a review, so uh, this uh, with Felipe Fregni and, and many other authors, uh, this is a very interesting review actually, because it was not only focused on depression, but in all types of neurological and psychiatric disorder. But on depression, we could find that TDCS was definitely effective for treating depression based on all literature, not only based on our studies, but based on all studies uh, published. Uh, and then here I, I can give you a, a real world example. So for instance, this is something that we are doing uh, very recently. So using, uh, let me show first the protocol. So it's a home use TDCS device where we do two milliamps, 30 minutes per day over the prefrontal cortex. Uh, this is combined with app-based behavior therapy uh, app that also uh, gives psychoeducation to the patient. So they, they use an app. And then they have like tips about psychoeducation and they have some uh, advices uh, like to improve their, the quality of their life. So it's kind of behavioral intervention. And we did 24 sessions during six weeks. Here is an example of patients. So all of them had a depression. Uh, you can see it's like a real world example. All of them had comorbidities. Uh, three of them had generalized anxiety disorder, which is very common in combination of depression. One of them also had social anxiety disorder. One of them also had OCD, uh, male, female with different ages. So a really common sample that we see in clinical practice. And we, we actually had nice, nice findings. Of course, this is very pilot, only, only five patients, but we could see that often were moderately depressed. And after six weeks, four had a very nice pattern of, of response. Actually three out of five remitted. A fourth one almost remitted. So basically they are, he uh, actually, she, she's also in the remission uh, field here. And only one 
patient did not remit, but also interesting that this patient had OCD, and we also know that OCD is much harder to treat. Maybe, maybe this is nothing again because it's only five patients, but this is also an indicative of some nice findings with TDCS, and we are really, really excited about the possibility of using TDCS at home. Uh, the other trials that we did, as, as I mentioned, so in post-stroke depression, this uh, my, was my PhD student, uh, Leandro Valiengo, and we could find that TDCS was superior to Shen uh, in terms of post-stroke depression, uh, a phase two study, uh, in another study that we did, a randomized clinical trial, this with Bernardo, who is also who was also my PhD student, uh, we could find that TDCS was superior to Shen in bipolar depression. So very similar protocols: uh, 12 sessions, 2 milliamps per day, 30 minutes per day uh, per session over the prefrontal cortex. And in new trials that we did now, not in the field of mood disorders, but in schizophrenia, we found uh, that TDCS was also superior to Shen in terms of negative symptoms of schizophrenia. This was also led by, by Leandro Valiengo. And the, in a final study that we just published, and uh, Renata was the first author, uh, uh, we did an OCD obsessive compulsive disorder with 43 patients. This was a more intensive protocol uh, with 20 sessions of, of TDCS. And we found that TDCS was also superior to Shen. Also interesting for these two disorders, we did not expect early efficacy. So we did not have an endpoint at week six, but then at week 12, because these disorders are more severe. And then we thought that it would take more time for TDCS being effective and we could actually prove our hypothesis. Uh, then continuing about my, my research lines, uh, later on we did a network meta-analysis of uh, TMS and depression. This was also one important study uh, that we could do. Basically, we combined uh, the, the, uh, all RCT studies using a TMS, but in a network meta-analysis sort of way, which is a kind of uh, different meta-analysis. Usually we only do the comparison between one intervention and placebo. This is called pairwise uh, or, or, or standard meta-analysis, but in the network meta-analysis, we are able to uh, investigate also the indirect comparison. So for instance, we have bilateral, sorry, it's, it's in Portuguese here, but uh, we have bilateral TMS here, we have Shen uh, TMS here, uh, and then we can extract the evidence not only between TMS and Shen, but also between all other modalities of TMS. So that's really the strength about the network meta-lens. We can do all direct and also uh, indirect comparisons. And then we could find that low-frequency TMS, high-frequency TMS, TBS, bilateral TMS, and priming TMS were superior to, to placebo, but not deep TMS, accelerated TMS, and synchronized TMS. So this was also uh, helpful in the field and also help, helped in, in the uh, establishment of guidelines or, or clinical practice, not only in our group, but also worldwide.
Yeah, fantastic, Andre. And um, it's it's really important to see that in a lot of your research, you have um, I, well, it's really it's really nice to know that a lot of the samples, uh, the participants are are real world participants and and can give us information on 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 something that's probably pretty um, pretty close to what we see in a real world yeah. sort of environment, um, which I know is one of your your goals. Um, so how would you use some of this research? What some of all these, all these findings um, over the past five, five, 10 years in this brilliant research that you've just shown us, um, are you beginning to apply that in your own clinical practice? And, and what sort of thing, how can you use this knowledge? Um, and speaking to those clinicians who are watching today, how can you, how can they use some of this in their own clinical practice? Do you think? Yeah, that, that's uh, absolutely very important question. Uh, that we, we are trying to answer. Just. Uh, Maybe just say that again. Just say that again. That's a very important question that we're trying to answer. Okay, so let, let, say that now. let, let yeah. me just delete here uh, and then be prepared here then. Okay. Okay. If, if you can just stay, please, um, because you were start you were doing your slides when you said that's a very important question oh, okay. that we're trying okay. to answer. Okay. Okay. Maybe prepare your slide, and then once you are sharing, you can say yes, that's a very important question that we're trying okay. to answer. And then, yeah, okay. thanks. Okay, no, yeah, it's better. Yeah, so Trevor, this is actually a very important question to answer how how we apply all these things in clinical practice, right? Uh, then I really have to mention first, uh, so first is one, but I really have to mention two TMS studies that are very important in my opinion, because they are really also pushing the field forward or moving the field forward. Um, the first one is the 3D study, which is a study that was done in Canada, uh, where they recruited more than 400 patients. So this was very large. Uh, and especially for TMS and uh, non-invasive brain stimulation standards. But then they had the research question of whether TBS would be as effective as the traditional 10 hertz TMS. It was a non-inferiority study. Uh, and basically what's the big advantage uh, It's that in clinical practice, you can do a TBS session in three minutes and not in 37.5 minutes, which is the FDA approved. Uh, or it was the FDA approved parameter. And they basically could find that both interventions, the three minute TBS and the, the almost 40 minutes TMS had the same efficacy. And because of that TBS was approved for treatment in depression. Uh, and of course, then that second question is, uh, if the patient can do one session, three minutes, why don't we do like 10 sessions per day if it's so fast? And then exactly this was the second study. So uh, first I have to highlight that I just showed a randomized clinical trial with 400 patients. This is a very pilot study with 30-ish patients, more or less. Uh, but it's also very interesting because they this SAINT study did basically that. Instead of doing only one session per day, they did 10 sessions per day for five days. So in five days, they did 50 sessions of, of TBS. And basically what they found uh, is that after one week, patients 
uh, went for a score of mothers, of mothers, which is the pressure rate scale of 35 to less than 10. So basically almost 90% of them achieved remission. And of course, this is not a shunt control trial. They only had 20, 30 patients. It's very preliminary, but I think that's also important to mention also foreseeing the future. And then commenting a little bit about clinical practice, I mentioned TDCS as a real world example, but because TDCS is not really approved in Brazil, this is changing fast, very fast. So in 2021, this year, actually, we expect that TDCS is approved as a treatment for depression in Brazil, but because it's not, then we really don't use in clinical practice, only in research, but TMS has been approved for uh, nine years now. So we, we have actually busy clinical practice service in our center. So I'm just showing a little bit of, of it here. We have five TMS machines. It's like a very uh, nice place, not only to do research, but also to receive uh, our patients. We do 10 sessions per day, uh, 200 sessions per, per week, almost or more than 7,000 sessions per year, over eight years. And I have also to mention that we only had a single report of seizure. So again, highlighting that seizure is a very, very uh, rare or uncommon event for, for TMS. Uh, basically, we treat most mostly psychiatric patients of, with depression. Then we develop our own protocols for depression. Uh, basically, we started doing 15 sessions of high-frequency TMS over the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We do the BIM method. Uh, neural navigation is being discussed as the preferred method in terms of efficacy, but new studies or, or, or studies have also shown that uh, the BIM method is just as fine for, for clinical practice. And then we do 120% of the motor threshold. If the patient does or, or first, or if the patient has depression comorbidity with generalized anxiety disorder, or if the patient has bipolar depression, then we do a different protocol. We started with low frequency TMS over the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. If the patient does not respond to any of these two treatments, then we do 10 to 15 sessions of bilateral TMS. So this is the protocol that we developed. And now we are slowly adapting our protocols for using TBS. We are still discussing uh, if we do more than one session per day. Uh, although we were very happy with the 3D study, we should also remember that TBS was not compared against, against placebo. So this might be uh, no important issue, uh, but uh, in fact, it was not compared against placebo, which is a requirement for approving uh, TBS in many, many places worldwide. So we are a little bit cautious about that. And uh, in clinical practice, we are uh, envisioning a goal that, so first I showed the, the uh, study trial, which was basically a path for using antidepressant drugs, where they start with one antidepressant and then they combined antidepressant with another drug or with psychotherapy and then so on until the patient receives ECT. But now I think we can, we are also developing another path uh, or a, another pathway where patient could start with TDCS and then combining TDCS with antidepressant drugs and then go 
then to TMS and then go to ECT. And uh, me and other people in our field are really developing evidence on that. So for instance, the ELECT TDCS trial showed that uh, TDCS as a monotherapy is effective. And then in the second uh, step, TDCS plus antidepressant drug is also effective for, for depression. And then in the third step, our network meta-analysis, but also these studies also showed that TMS is effective uh, in depression. And then of course, CCT, we know that's effective, but we are really developing a new clinical uh, pathway for using neuromodulation clinical practice. And that's one of our main uh, goals, like adapting uh, non-invasive brain stimulation clinical practice. Thanks, Andre. Yeah, it's 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 really important for for us um, uh, as other researchers, people in the field, clinicians in particular, to know that um, researchers and and clinicians like yourself, who are very experienced in neuromodulation, both TDCS and TMS, are are trialing all of these different methods, um, the different protocols, so that um, when it becomes approved and evidence-based, we know that people who have done it for years, uh, you, you've been doing this in your, in your clinic yeah. for, for, for 10 years, it gives us the, the assurity that um, all of these protocols are, are, have been tested. Um, and um, yeah, so, so it takes a while for, this, um, for these protocols to come through. And sure. I, I know that you're doing the clinical trials, you're doing the research. Um, what's the focus of your current research now so that we can, I guess, not only use the evidence-based protocols, but start to begin to use these, these protocols that you're trialing in your clinic as well. Um, and, and how do you see the, the potential translation of what you're doing into, into things that we can use over the next 10 years? Yeah, so that's, uh, again, very important question. And then uh, that's like the present and the future. That's, that's me <laughs> in the present, much older than the first pictures, but uh, I'm still here. Uh, and of course, as a physician uh, or as a psychiatrist and physician, then my, my question is always, how can we improve our patients' lives? So that's that's uh, one of the, my main drives in doing clinical research. But now, uh, I would add new questions which are in the framework of precision neuromodulation. So we can see that the field developed a lot when I first started going to uh, conferences or symposium in 2010, then we were in a very exotic rooms, you know, almost outside of the, the building. And now it's really mainstream neuromodulation. And, but, but because of that, we also have much more complex research questions than we used to have in the beginning. Uh, and now in this concept of precision neuromodulation, we have this question. So uh, as you can see here, TDCS, TMS, and CT, they work, but we could do better than, than that, right? So how, of course, we can always improve the efficacy, but how can we do that? Uh, the second, or, or not in, in like in a, in a rank, but another question would be, could biomarkers help? There, there are lots of discussion about using biomarkers in psychiatry. Could they also help in neuromodulation? And then I think especially for neuromodulation, 
biomarkers would be helpful because we are directly targeting the brain instead of taking a pill, which is much more complex in terms of metabolism and, and you have to consider the body metabolism as well. But for uh, brain stimulation, I think they would be really, really uh, helpful. Uh, and then again, related question is, can we predict the response of, of people who are using TDCS and TMS? Because of, of course, uh, the disadvantage of, of TMS, for instance, that the patient has to go to the clinic uh, every day instead of taking a pill where people can only return to the hospital every month, for instance. So how can we predict the, the response of them? Uh, can, could TDCS be escalated? This is another question. Can we accelerate TMS response? Can we further improve VCT, making it effective, but without its side effects? So these are the questions that I don't have an answer, but which are in my mind uh, right now. The, the question of trying to predict uh, the response of TDCS, we, we are starting to answer. Uh, it and using the data from our elect TDCS trial. So we were also very fortunate because we recruited 245 patients and we had TDCS and acetaloprine. So we can really compare the efficacy between them, not only at the group level, but also at the individual level, which is important for making predictions. And then we develop many studies a predicting response and evaluating biomarkers. I will, of course, not comment all of them, uh, but I will comment some studies that were particularly important thinking about precision uh, neuromodulation. Uh, one of them is that we tried to predict treatment response using a machine learning framework. So I'm not going into the details of the machine learning. Basically, we use a state-of-the-art algorithm to predict response. Uh, another important aspect is that we use only baseline data. So it was just like a patient sitting in front of me and I do, I'm do. i doing like a regular anamnesis, uh, asking him questions about, uh, yeah, about depression, about their, you know, uh, clinical questions. And af after the end of my interview, I would try to figure out whether this patient could receive estaloprene or TDCH, which is the things we do as psychiatrists, right? Uh, but then we use this machine learning framework work, trying to predict that in a more uh, data-driven way. We basically, there were not super results in terms of prediction, but uh, I'm highlighting here that the predictors of TDCS and estaloprene were very different. And then here we can see the comparison side by side. So basically for TDCS, negative effect was the single most important predictor. And also positive effect in the number of depressive episodes were uh, important predictors. But for acetaloprene, many clinical features were predictors such as body mass index, obesity, uh, trait anxiety, negative effect, uh, clinical scales, neuropsychological scales. And I think this relate also with my comment that TDCS is much more focused in the brain compared to estaloprene, which uh, involves the, the whole body, you know, like uh, the whole, the, not only the brain, but also the body. So 
many other clinical features would influence cystoloprene and for TDCS, only these features, which are also related to a specific part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. So I think this was important when we think about personalizing uh, TDCS. Uh, we went further uh, in identifying predictors of response for TDCS. So this was another analysis that, that we did and trying to think about trajectories. So again, at baseline, uh, what's the proportion of patients who will not respond, who will present a slow response and who will present a rapid response. And we could also see that almost, or a little bit more than 40% of patients will present a rapid, a fast response with TDCS. We can see that as early as week three, they will present uh, a sustained and fast response. So this is also uh, something that can be helpful in clinical practice. For instance, that we expect that almost 40% of patients would present a fast response for TDCS, and this can guide clinicians uh, when using and deciding whether or not using a TDCS. And also we could identify different predictors comparing trajectories. So for instance, uh, we could see that comparing, for instance, rapid versus uh, slow trajectories, then use of benzodiazepine was very important. Uh, when comparing rapid versus no or minimal uh, response, we could see that age was important. And when comparing slow versus no response, we could see again that age and depression severity was important. So not only predicting in terms of response, yes or no, but uh, predicting in terms of trajectory. So giving more fine-grained information about, about the effects of TDCS. Uh, another study that's under review, and this one I particularly like very, very much, because we, we uh, further examine the question of uh, the construct of depression. So uh, in, the, in the very beginning, I commented that depression had two main symptoms and accessory symptoms, but this also makes uh, depression a very heterogeneous disorder. So people, we can have like three people with depression, they would have very little overlap between the symptoms. So I can have one patient with severe uh, suicidality and another one with more anxiety and other one not sleeping very well. So very different uh, symptoms. And then the question is, well, could we find a group of, of uh, patients that would respond better to this? Yes. And then we did we, we tried to answer this question and we could find actually that uh, first that the core depression, so uh, mood, uh, sad mood, so uh, sadness and loss of interest, TDCS was effective, was uh, better than placebo and the stelopron was also better than placebo. But we could see that, uh, for instance, for guilt and anxiety, TDCS was not very good. Stelopron was better. On the other hand, for sleep and Sonia, TDCS was better than stelopram. That's why I like this study because it, it was it, it is the first one showing evidence that TDCS could be better than stelopram for specific groups of symptoms, which is sleep and Sonia. So maybe this can also guide uh, clinicians. So in the future, if 
you have one patient with uh, depression and more guilt and anxiety symptoms, so give him an antidepressant drug. On the other hand, if you have a patient with TDCS and problems with sleeping, then TDCS would be better than, than estaloprim. So I think that's really helpful in terms of prediction. Uh, we also examined some biomarkers and we could find two of them which are of particular interest. So one of them is, uh, is, uh, is a study that we did with structural neuroimaging and we could find that the volume or the size of the prefrontal cortex predicted TDCS response, but not acetalopram response. So specifically, people who had larger volumes of the prefrontal cortex presented a larger response for TDCS. And th this makes sense because we do TDCS over the, the prefrontal cortex uh, and acetalopram, you, you don't stimulate the prefrontal cortex, you do everything. So this again, indicating some differences or some specific specificity between TDCS and estaloprane. They are both treatments for depression, but they are not the same type of treatment. And this is one thing that our field, our neuromodulation field is really showing uh, for in, in psychiatry. And then a follow-up study, now not using neuroimaging, but using simulation of electrical field. And I think this is nice in two aspects. So here on the left, you can see uh, the simulation of the electrical fields in 16 patients uh, who received TDCS or uh, in 16 MRIs, neuro, neuroimaging uh, MRI of these patients, the electrodes were always placed in the same position, but you can see the huge variation. So you can see here uh, in this brain, for instance, there was a huge activation of the brain, whereas for instance, here, there was almost no activation. So uh, in all cases, TDCS was placed in the same position, but for some patients, huge activation, for other patients, no activation. And why is that? Because there is individual neuroanatomic differences between these patients. In the second question, okay, does this really matter or it's just like a, an artifact or a epiphenomenon, as we say? Uh, it does matter. So there is an association between uh, more activation, uh, more strength in the electrical field and greater decreasing or, or, or more decreasing of symptoms of depression anxiety. So the higher the electrical field over the prefrontal cortex, the higher the reduction in depression and anxiety symptoms. So uh, this is something also indicating towards uh, precision uh, or, or adjusting the parameters of TDCS for achieving or higher response in depression. A little bit about the research, the researches that we, we are doing now. I didn't comment anything about ECT, but this is one big trial that we are starting. So I think it's also important to mention. Uh, and basically we have two large clinical trials that, was, that were just approved by FAPES, which is a large uh, research foundation here in Brazil. The first one, uh, is a randomized clinical trial with 100 MDD patients uh, who are ECT eligible. So they are very severe patients and they are being randomized for ECT or magnetic seizure therapy. So magnetic seizure therapy is a modification of TMS 
basically you use a TMS device, but to induce a seizure. And, and then you use like a very high frequency, a very high pulse, it's like different parameters, but importantly is an electromagnetic field. And the important, the important aspect here is that this electromagnetic field can induce seizures in the prefrontal cortex, but they would not reach the hippocampus. So, and therefore the hypothesis would be that they, it would have the same efficacy as ECT, but with less side effects because it doesn't reach the hippocampus and the hippocampus is responsible for memory and for some cognitive functioning that is affected with ECT, but not uh, with MST. So in terms of design, it's an interesting design. Uh, similarly, and no inferiority in terms of efficacy, but superiority of MCT versus ECT in terms of cognitive effects. And we are very uh, looking forward to, to start this trial. And the second one is the SILECT study. So following SELECT, ELECT, and now the SILECT study, where we want to recruit 210 patients with moderate depression. So this is in the other side of the spectrum. ECT, very severe patients, TDCS, uh, much less severe patients. And then we are randomizing to three groups, home use TDCS plus active behavior therapy, home use TDCS plus sham behavior therapy or simulated behavior therapy. Basically they will uh, not receive the psychoeducational content and sham sham. And then our hypothesis is that the combination of TDCS plus behavior therapy would be better than TDCS alone, and TDCS alone would be better than SHAM. So these are the two big trials that we hope we can start in 2021. Okay. Great, thanks, Andre. Um, look, we'll have to cut this because there's some noise outside on, on my part. Um, so we'll just wait for that to finish and, um, and then I'll ask the next question. <laughs> um, so, okay, that, seem, that seems to have finished. Look, next question. Um, okay. That's, that's fantastic, Andre. Thank you very much. And, and obviously a lot of that current research that you're doing is going to be clinically uh, applicable for us, enable, enabling us to make decision rules along the way. If this is the presentation of the client, then, then this. And there's also brain imaging that you have there that can help, uh, help inform um, our, our decision-making so that we can personalize interventions and we can optimize the, the treatment efficacy. So, so really, you know, these are really important um, studies that you're doing and, and it's fantastic. So um, what, what, are your, what are your future research aspirations? Just to, just, to, just to finish off this interview, I think a last question, what are, you, what, are you, what are you gonna be doing? What are you focusing on in the future? Yeah, that's, that's a, um, yeah, let me start sharing first. Oh, am I sharing? Not, I'm not, right? Okay. okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, can I start? Uh, oh, sorry, there's dot points. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Okay, 
you can start. Okay. Yeah, so, so uh, that's a very uh, important question. So how, how I, I see the future, I think I talked a little bit about my pure research perspectives, and then this would be, of course, further advance in the field in terms of precision neuromodulation. And of course, we have this uh, vocational or this role here in this vocation here in Brazil and the ability for doing large clinical trials. And of course, we, we want to do that because we, we have this expertise, right? I mean, doing clinical trials is not an easy task. Uh, there are lots of details in terms of doing a proper, not only a proper randomization, but the blinding is very subtle and complex for non-invasive brain stimulation. You cannot do, you have to develop the own the proper ways for doing blinding. Also like recruitment is hard, it's harder for neuromodulation. Uh, avoiding dropouts is harder for neuromodulation because people have to go uh, uh, every day. And now there is this new challenge for basically conducting a, almost a digital trial uh, because in this select that I just mentioned, we might only see patients twice at the beginning and at the end, everything else will be done remotely, uh, which is also very challenging because there is no really no precedent about how to conduct a trial this way. So these are things that are challenging, but also very exciting as for a researcher. Uh, but think about, uh, a little bit about, uh, about the personal aspect. Of course, uh, when we talk about Brazil, uh, it's how it's uh, the, the country is in a hard moment. Uh, nowadays, and there are some difficult things about developing an academic career in Brazil. Uh, maybe not so much for me, because now I have a position uh, at the university, uh, which is a tenured stable position, uh, but for people who are uh, young investigators. But I would also like to say that there are positive and negative aspects at every country. So I mentioned, for instance, the positive aspect of uh, being able to do clinical or clinical trials here with lots of patients. Uh, some aspects are easy to do here uh, compared to, to Europe and the US, and I can say that because I have both experience. Uh, and of course, moving abroad versus staying in your own country, it's also personal reasons, opportunities abroad and local opportunities as well. So we always have to balance that. Uh, and they would say, that uh, not only personally, but also in terms of career, it, it has been a very good moment for me. I returned to Brazil in, uh, at the end of 2018. I was in Munich, then I returned here. So I'm beginning my new position as a professor in 2019. And I am also having new or exciting new experiences as a, as a associate professor here. So supervising, undergrad, PhD, and postdocs. Uh, I have more freedom now for acting as a PI and doing grant applications, uh, roles at the medical school. Uh, when you start to become old, older and more senior, then you, you go to committees or committees, working groups as well, but you also are, you are, you are also part of the community of the university, which is also nice. In the teaching activities, of course, I know that many researchers uh, don't like to do teaching activities. I like to do very modestly. So 
but a few hours per week, I think it's important uh, also because it gives you ideas about what to do uh, in terms of, of, of research. And I would say that uh, coincidence or not, when I arrived here in uh, 2019, in 2019 and 2020, I was pointed out as a highly cited researcher uh, by the Web of Science uh, Clarivate Analytics, which is uh, a very prestigious uh, appointment or indication. So for instance, uh, in my university, uh, only two people in the medical school were pointed as, as top researchers and I was one of them. So um, uh, of course we never know what the future reserves to us, but I'm, I'm happy uh, here and then my main idea would be uh, continuing doing my, my work here and my job here. And then I would like also to, to thank you. Thank you Neuro Academy for inviting me. Uh, it was a very nice opportunity to talk, not only about my research, but also about me. It was a very reflexive uh, lecture also for me. Thank you. Great, could you stop sharing your slide? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Andre. Look, that's um, that's brilliant. We're you know very honoured to have you uh, as a part of NeuroCare Academy, and um, yeah, you know thank you for nice. your time. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. So have a good day then. Bye bye. Bye bye. Great. We'll stop. Um... Oh.